Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. The pilot, everyone's been stabbed. They're in the back of the airplane. They're not... Oh, the hijackers are in the cockpit. Oh, no. Okay, we just lost connection. This is CNN Breaking News. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. A gigantic sonic boom. The air is filled with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that are just sort of floating like confetti. You say that emergency vehicles are there. That's another jet so, but Of course, the major concern is human oh loss. I mean... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Why do you say that was definitely on purpose? Because it literally blew itself into World Trade Center. Early reports are that at least one of those planes was a hijacked American Airlines plane en route from Boston to Los Angeles. Thousands of people that have been running from inside these buildings. We're blanking dying when asked what was happening and hung up. There was screaming and yelling in the background and a follow-up call was not answered. We heard a big bang and then we saw smoke coming out and everybody started running out and we saw the plane on the other side of the building and there was smoke everywhere and people are jumping out the windows. Over there they're jumping out the windows I guess because they're trying to see themselves. I don't know. Bodies started dropping from the top floors of the uh, tower closest to the highway. Obviously they had two choices to be burned into in flames or to uh, leap and end it all. It was quite tragic. And you're listening to the sounds of September 11th, 2001. This is our American Stories. That first plane crash. The first plane crash happened about 10 minutes before newly elected President Bush arrived at Booker Elementary School, the first black school in Sarasota, Florida. At 9.05 a.m., White House Chief of Staff Andy Card whispered into Bush's ear, quote, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. Let's go to President Bush's first press conference immediately following the second attack. David, David, we're going to cut cut you off. President Bush is speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a a difficult moment for America. Uh, Today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. And the story just kept getting worse. Oh, my goodness. 
Oh my goodness, there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Associated Press is reporting that a plane crashed at the Pentagon. The heart of the military uh, command center of the United States of America, John. It can't get much worse than this, let's hope. I'm in front of the Capitol, and a moment ago, police officers ran up to us and told us, and I quote, there is a plane that has been hijacked and is headed this way. It should be noted that there are sharpshooters on the roof of the White House who have anti-aircraft missiles for just this kind of situation. Wow. And some Jamie, people were... Jamie, I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising. Let's go to the Trade Tower again because, John, we now have a... What do we have? We don't... It looks like a, a new plume, a new large plume of smoke. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! We're not sure exactly what happened, but it was another explosion on the far side of one of the buildings from where we're standing. The, ver the, the reverberation and another explosion on the right-hand side. And I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower, but there was a cascade of sparks and fire, and now this, it looks almost like a mushroom cloud. What is behind it, we're, I, I cannot tell you. But just look at that. That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. The whole side has collapsed? The whole building has collapsed. The whole building has collapsed? The building has collapsed. It pulled it down on itself. Maybe there's two of us in this office. We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. There's lots of people up here. Oh, God! Oh, there it goes. 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 And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. United 93, go ahead. We have a report that a 747 uh, is down in Pennsylvania. I need to interrupt you. This is a Taliban spokesman uh, talking uh, now in Kabul, I believe. Uh, sources are telling CNN that there are, quote, good indications that people with links to the Osama bin Laden organization are responsible for today's attacks. Dateline, uh, West Bank, uh, thousands of Palestinians celebrated today's terror attacks in the United States, chanting, God is great, and distributing candy to passers-by. And when we come back for the hour, remembering 9-11-2001, this is Our American Stories.
is completely engulfed. We're on the floor and we can't breathe. Okay. And it's very, very, very hot. It's very, is it, are the lights still on? The lights are on, but it's, and it's very, very hot. Everybody stay calm. Hold on one second, please. I'm going to die, aren't I? No, 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 no. Say I'm going to die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. And we're not going to die. We're going to think positive because you got to help each other get off the floor. I'm now, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. This is Our American Stories, remembering September 11, 2001. We want to share a few stories in this hour, among the many thousands of tragedies. Also, all kinds of heroism on display, but lots of loss, lots of love, lots of anger, too, on that day. And here's Jay Jonas of the Fire Department of the City of New York. On September 11, 2001, I was the captain of Ladder Company 6 in the Chinatown section of Lower Manhattan. It was the change of tours, and uh, all of a sudden we heard a, a loud jet trail go across the sky, and uh, we could hear the plane hit the North Tower. Uh, we responded, and uh, we arrived at the uh, North Tower of the World Trade Center. As we were responding in, we could see uh, large gaping holes and there's two sides of the uh, North Tower with uh, smoke and fire coming out under pressure. And it was an incredible sight, something that, you know, I was a, I had 22 years on the fire department at the time in some very busy places, and uh, nothing prepared me for what I was seeing. And um, we got there, we um, went to receive our orders uh, from uh, the incident commander, which was Deputy Chief Pete Hayden. And as as we were waiting to get our orders, uh, we saw a large black shadow on the ground and we heard a loud explosion and we didn't know what that was. And a man came running in from the outside and said that a second plane has just hit the second tower. So now we knew we were under attack. Uh, It was not an accident. And uh, one of the most poignant things that was ever said that day was at this point, one of the firemen that I was standing near um, just looked up and he said, he said, gentlemen, we may not live through today. And uh, all the firemen that were standing there, uh, we all agreed. And we wished each other good luck and shook each other's hands. And, and uh, out of all the guys I was surrounded by when the, uh, that plane hit the South Tower, I'm the only one that's alive. They all died. The North Tower was exactly where the 1993 attackers detonated their truck bomb in the first terrorist incident and first terrorist attack against the World Trade Center. But in that moment, in that firehouse, there was no time to think back. These firefighters had a job to do. I received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the North Tower. So we proceeded to go up by foot. We made it to the 27th floor, and um, we were catching our breath and getting a a quick drink of water when we felt uh, and heard the... uh, collapse of the South Tower. We were in the North Tower. And um, that was an indication to me that it was time, uh, that our mission was no longer workable, that it was time for us to get out of there. And we started heading down the stairs. Uh, as we were going down the stairs, we came upon a woman who was in distress. She couldn't walk. And uh, one of my firemen, Tommy Falco, turned and looked at me and says, hey, Cap, what do you want to do with her? And uh, even knowing that we were in the full retreat mode, 
that we were run, essentially running for our lives, uh, we couldn't pass it. So we, we decided to put ourselves into harm's way to, to save her. And uh, so we did. We started carrying her down the stairs, which created a log jam of people behind us, so we had to step aside a couple times to let them pass. And um, we had made it to the fourth floor, and uh, she... Uh, she fell to the floor and she was yelling at us, telling us to leave her, and we weren't going to leave her. So uh, we broke in, I broke into the fourth floor to look for a sturdy chair that we could put her on and we could pick her up within the with her in the chair and run with her. And I couldn't find one. It wasn't an office floor. I almost made it back to the, to the stairway. That's when the collapse of my building started. At 10.28 a.m. on 9-11, after being on fire for 102 minutes, the North Tower collapsed. It took 13 seconds. At least that's what the clocks say. Back to firefighter Jay Jonas remembering what it was like inside as the North Tower crumbled on top of them. I uh, received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the North Tower. So we proceeded to go. I uh, received our orders. We kept waiting for the, the big beam or the big piece of concrete to come and get us. And for us, it didn't come. And uh, you know, once the collapse stopped... We gave out a, a roll call to see who was still alive, and all my men were still alive. The woman we were rescuing was still alive. Uh, there was a total of uh, 13 of us in the stairway. And um, so we, uh, but now we're trapped. You know, so we're going through uh, the ordeal of trying to figure out how to get out. And then once we realized we couldn't help ourselves, we had to mentally come to the um, realization that you know we're we're in need of rescue. That you know we're no longer the rescuers, we're the rescuees. And uh, so we had to uh, talking to several people on the radio. Some of them were some of my closest friends in the fire department, and uh, it was very comforting to talk to them. After about after a very harrowing ordeal of being trapped, it was about um, three and a half to four hours later. When um, a ray of sunshine hit the uh, hit the stairway, and it was coming from the outside, the the smoke and dust had cleared to the point where um, uh, the sunlight hit the stairway. We realized that we were essentially on top of the World Trade Center. We're on the fourth floor, and we're on top of the World Trade Center. But Jay didn't have time to dwell on this rather amazing and certainly sobering point. They were still trapped in the building with civilians, including a collapsed woman. And so they went back to work. With the added light, we, we, we saw a way that we, we could get out. And uh, uh, one of the people who were trapped wanted to get out right away. So we tied him off on a rope and uh, we told him to make contact with a fireman that we saw off in the distance. He tied off the rope and we tied off the rope in the stairway and we started sending people out on the rope. And uh, by the time the firemen made it to the, uh, to the stairway, we had almost everybody out, but th th they had to take out Josephine Harris, the woman. And uh, they needed fresh people and a Stokes basket stretcher to take her out. And then we worked our way across the rubble. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. It was my last run as a captain of Ladder 6, because uh, I'd be promoted five days later. But um, it was... Uh, heartwarming to see one by one my men making it to West Street 
and I felt once they made it to West Street, they would be safe. And uh, one by one, I got to see that happen. From a, uh, a fire officer's perspective, under a day like that, it, uh, my men made it, you know, and, and I sent them home to their families that night, which was certainly not a common thing that happened that day, you know, that uh, uh, we're very fortunate. And you know what? This woman, Josephine Harris, saved these fighters' lives, too. She collapsed on the fourth floor, so that's where Jay and his men slowed down. When the building collapsed, no one survived above the fifth floor or down on the first. For years after, she and the fighter fighters who took turns carrying her downstairs stayed in touch. Whenever Josephine was asked for an interview, she would call the firefighters to make sure they were okay with it. And they would always say yes, and that they'd be there for her. On January 11, 2011, Josephine Harris called 911 from her apartment in Brooklyn. Firefighters and paramedics rushed to the scene, but it was too late. Josephine had died of an apparent heart attack. Jay Jonas later said that it was, quote, like losing a member of your family. And she really was a member of the Ladder Six family. They then learned that Josephine was penniless. It turns out her family couldn't afford to bury her, so her body stayed at the city morgue. Well, Jay and the guys, they called around for help, and the owner of the Greenwich Village Funeral Home remembered the story of the guardian angel of Ladder 6. He took care of all the funeral costs, and Jonas and the firefighters carried her one more time, one last time as pallbearers of a casket engraved with the words Guardian Angel. This is Our American Stories, Jay Jonas's story, the story of 9-11, remembered more after these messages. This is Our American Stories, remembering the anniversary of 9-11. Many companies and families lost loved ones that day. I lost one of my best friends, co-captain of my high school basketball team for two years. There was nothing we didn't do together for so many years, Paul Biatini. There was one investment company that lost 658 of its 960 employees. Before that day, Cantor Fitzgerald hadn't been all that well known beyond Wall Street. However, after 9-11, it was known as the business to have lost the most 
employees on 9-11. Quote, we have death fame, CEO Howard Lutnick said. A few days after the horrific event, Lutnick participated in an emotional interview. He didn't just lose all those employees, by the way. One of them was his brother. Here he is explaining why he wasn't there. My little boy, I have a five-year-old, and it was his first day of kindergarten at, uh, at Horace Mann, so I took him for his first day at big boy school. And uh, because of that, I was late getting down to the office, and uh, therefore I, I wasn't in the building. I was on my way. I saw the building on fire, so I, I didn't go in. Um, but I stood, I stood at the door um, off of Church Street, um, where there were flags there, and I stood at that door, um, and people were coming out, and I was yelling at them, you know, to run and get out. And uh, there were police sort of around me, um, yelling at people, telling them to get out. And, and I would ask them what floor they were coming from, what floor they're coming from. Someone would say 55, and I'd scream, "We have 55!" And because and, I kept wanting to get up the building, and well, my brother, my brother was on the 103rd floor. He worked, he worked for me, and um, he worked at Canner, and uh, he, he called my sister. Uh, just after the just after the plane hit, and he told her that um, he said that the smoke was pouring in. He was he was stuck in a corner office. There was no way out, and the smoke was coming in. And he's he's not good, and and things are not good, and he's not going to make it. And he just wanted to say that he loved her, and he wanted to say goodbye, and uh, tell everyone that that he loved them. And then the phone went the phone went dead. The plane crashed into floors 93 through 99. Cantor Fitzgerald was located right above that. 101 to 105, the top floors of of number one World Trade Center, which they call now the North Tower. I got to the 91st floor, and I knew if I got one employee, if one person came down from that floor, then I know that there had to be others. There would be others behind them. There would be others going out other doors that, that would be good. But I got up to 91, and then I heard this sound. It sounded like... Another plane was going to hit the building, and was but it didn't sound like it was far away. It sounded like it was, like right where the ceiling is above us. It was so unbelievably loud, and someone screamed out, "Another one's coming!" So I just turned around and ran, and I and I was running. I it was it was number two World Trade Center collapsing. So I'm a, I'm standing underneath a building like an idiot, um, and I start running, and I'm trying to get ahead of the smoke. And then the smoke comes around the corner on Trinity Church where I ran and knocks me down underneath a truck, and I'm sitting there in this black, the blackest black that can ever be. I reached up, I tried to see if I could see, and I took my hands and I put it up and I actually touched my eye. I, I couldn't see my hand. I could feel the particles in the air. They were, they were like this big. I could feel them going in and I wasn't, I couldn't think to like pick up my shirt and put, I was just, I was just sitting there thinking, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe by standing there I died. So I just start walking, I just start walking straight. And I just walk straight. And I just keep walking straight. And I called my wife four hours later, and she was hysterical crying. And so I understand why it took lots of people a long time. I, I was, I'm a pretty together person, and I, four hours I walked. I just walked north. I just kept walking. And he just kept walking. All the Cantor Fitzgerald companies are connected by speakerphone. So there were voices heard from the tower amidst the chaos. Yeah, we have, you know, a speakerphone because all our offices are connected in our equity business. They're, um, they're all connected to each other because they talk to each other all day. And they heard them saying, you know, we need help, we need help, we need help. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't screams. It was, 
there was nowhere to go. You couldn't go down, you couldn't go up. There was nowhere to go. But I don't know of a single one of my employees who got down. Zero. Zero, and it's really sad, but I think we're all pulling together with a view that we want to make things happen for them. We, we need to take care of them. We need to figure out how to take care of them and give them more take care of them. And I think it's going to be a different kind of drive than I've ever had before. It's not about my, it's not about my family. I get to kiss my kids. I get to kiss my kids tonight. But other people don't get to kiss their kids. And I just have to help them. And I think, I think what's amazing, and I think it's amazing, you have 300 people. They lost all their friends. They lost the person to their left. They lost the person to their right. And they call me up and they say, I want to go to work. I say, why do you want to go to work? Let's just go to funerals. And they go, no, no, I want to go to work. I can't stay home. I can't stay home. I have to make, I have to work. I have to do something. And so they, they actually wanted to try to figure out how to be in business. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But the, the, the reason they want to be in business, and there's only one reason to be in business, is because we have to make our company be able to take care of my 700 families. 700 families. How do you have 700 families? Just, I can't say it. I can't say it without crying. Well, a different kind of drive that he'd never known before kicked in to Howard Lutnick and those remaining employees. Howard further explains what Cantor Fitzgerald was doing before and after. Cantor Fitzgerald is the primary, it's like the exchange for the world's bond markets. I mean, it's, it, it is the exchange for the world bond markets. Uh, we last, last year we did $50 trillion in business. Today, the remaining employees of Cantor Fitzgerald and Eastbeat have worked every second since that bomb, and they made the decision. And I told them, there's no reason for us to open. I don't care when we open, if we open, it doesn't matter to me. And they collectively, 250 of them, collectively voted that they were going to open the markets. And this morning, at 7 a.m., those people opened for business, not to, to make money, not to, but they did it because they thought if the, if the Fed and the Treasury wanted it to be open, it was important enough for them to show strength for America and for these markets, then they were going to do their damnedest to get it open, and they did. And it, I, I voted against it. I said, why? I, I don't want you to work. I want you to go home and kiss your kids and, and hug your families. And, but they, it's them. They wanted, they wanted to do it, maybe for themselves, maybe for the, their friends who they lost. But so right this second, it, our electronic systems are running around the world, and it's, I don't know, maybe it's a miracle. Maybe it's because these people are just... They're unbelievable. I think you can only be a good boss if you have the right people. And I'm glad they chose to be with me, but I'm the saddest person in the world that they chose to be with me. Because <laughs> they would have chose to be with me. <laughs> so many people, so many names, so many people I loved. So many people we all loved. Again, that's Howard Lutnick. The CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, they lost so much, but they did go back to work, and here's why. After 9-11, the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund was established. All those people went back to work for a cause, a big cause. They have distributed more than $180 million to the family of Cantor Fitzgerald. 
one quarter of the firm's profits. What a great American story. What a sad American story. Cantor Fitzgerald's story. Howard Lutnick's story here on Our American Stories, 9-11 Remembered. to George Bush. Those words will go down in history. And you're also listening to Tom Petty performing on September 21, 2001 in a very special tribute put on by Fox, ABC, NBC, and CBS, a musical tribute called America, a Tribute to Heroes. And my goodness, what a lineup of stars that night. It was everybody. And music has the ability to just heal and bring people together. And it was Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder and U2 and Faith Hill, Petty as you just heard, Enrique Iglesias, Neil Young, Alicia Keys, Billy Joel, the Dixie Chicks, Mariah Carey, Bon Jovi, Sheryl Crow, Sting, Paul Simon, Celine Dion, Willie Nelson. It was a remarkable, remarkable night of music. And I think the whole country watched it and just shut up and listened. And it was beautiful. And no talking by the musicians, almost none. They just played. So let's go back there, because we love music here on Our American Stories. Let's take a listen to Mr. New Yorker himself, Billy Joel. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Have a flight to Miami Beach or Hollywood. Me, I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. I'm in the New York state of mind. Mm-hmm. 
And just a few minutes later, Mr. New Jersey stepped up and performed a song he'd written about his hometown that he tweaked. He'd never played it before nationally. And it was perfect and a perfect song for the occasion. Prayer for our fallen brothers and sisters. There's a blood red circle on the cold dark ground, and the rain is falling down. The church door's thrown open, I can hear the organ song, but the congregation's gone. My city of ruin. My city of ruins Now the sweet bells of mercy Drift through the evening trees Young men on the corner Like scattered leaves The boarded up windows The empty streets And my brother's down on his knees My city of ruins My city of ruins Come on, rise up 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 Come on, rise And perhaps the best song written about 9-11 was by Alan Jackson. He wrote it. He sang it. Where were you when the world stopped turning? And I remember where I was. And I remember Alan talking about that song once in an interview, and he had said it made everybody... Reevaluate their lives. Well, I reevaluated mine. I was an inveterate bachelor dating a great girl. And I ended up proposing to that girl and getting married to her. And she was in the same place. She thought she'd never settle down. And the same thing happened to her, to us. And we've got a beautiful daughter. And I think 9-11, well, that was the reason for it. it. Made a lot of us grow up. And so, closing out this hour, where so many perished, And my goodness, 2,606 were killed at the World Trade Center, 125 at the Pentagon, 265 in all four planes. On Flight 93, 40 civilians were killed. 2,996 Americans altogether perished. Friends, family, lovers, employees, and... Well, here on Our American Stories, we'll always remember this day in history. And so let's close it out with Alan Jackson. And again, no one sang it better. No one wrote it better. Where were you when the world stopped turning? Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? 
You in the yard with your wife and children were working on some stage in L.A. Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor? Or did you just sit down and cry? Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sobbed for the ones left below? Did you burst out with pride for the red, white, and blue and the heroes who died just doing what they do? Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters? I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN but I'm not sure I can tell you The difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things he gave us Greatest is love. Where were you when the and Alan Jackson is still stunned that to this day that song has staying power. Our special 9-11 hour here on Our American Stories, one of the biggest American stories of the century in our history. This is Our American Stories. In a crowded room did you feel alone? Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her? Did you dust off that Bible at home? Did you open your eyes and hope it never happened? Close your eyes and not go to sleep? Did you notice the sunset the first time in ages and speak to some stranger on the street? Did you lay down at night Think of tomorrow, go out and buy you a gun Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching And turn on I Love Lucy reruns Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers Stand in line and give your own blood Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family Thank God you had somebody to love Simple songs, I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you The difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus and I've talked to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN But I'm not sure I can tell you The difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus 
and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love And the greatest is love And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Habib and this is Our American Stories and now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org it's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids and also make sure to leave your story there our first story is from Memphis where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities it's a heartwarming video, already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the, the child if he was going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom you know, doesn't have that kind of money. And... Um, all the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago uh, today while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was uh, an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. 
But Ibby says not here. Thanks to a barista who recently did something truly grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note, which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffees? She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drink? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It's something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now, still smiling. (laughs) And finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So we always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. 
And there you have it, from all around this great country, from coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness. And you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages. is our American stories and we love to talk about heroism when we can encourage love and loss and this segment is a tribute to, so- to soldiers who've fallen and it's a time for all of us always I don't know that we have to wait for Memorial Day or special days to do this and we don't hear in our American stories from time to time We just bring you these stories. Same with fallen cops, uh, doctors who do remarkable things, folks in churches who do beautiful things, just ordinary Americans doing good things. We like to talk about that. You get enough bad news everywhere else. Come to us for some good news. And this is a tribute from Tony Dolan. We last heard his tribute to his father, his eulogy, and we do a lot of that in a segment we call Final Thoughts. And if you don't know Tony Dolan, he was one of the youngest Pulitzer Prize winners in American history for his investigation of official corruption and organized crime in Connecticut in Hartford. He's a legend there to this day. Death threats against him and put a whole lot of guys in prison. He was the chief speechwriter for Ronald Reagan for eight years, responsible for some of the greatest rhetoric of the 20th century, most notably the evil empire speech and the ash heap of history speech. And he is a veteran of eight presidential campaigns. Tony's tribute originally appeared in the Wall Street Journal and is titled, They Will Be Remembered for All Those Who Served. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I heard the thump as I was saying over the phone to John Gibson at the National Security Council that it couldn't be an accident, since now a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. Putting down the phone, I walked over to the window and looked out on Route 110, which runs in front of the Pentagon. Construction workers, their faces reflecting fear, even terror, were running across this major highway like it was a country road. They had seen the smoke pouring out from around the corner where Flight 77 had hit the building. John, I'll have to call you back, I said when I got back to the phone. I think we just got hit. Move it to the right, said the soldier, when another soldier bent over to adjust the pedal of his wheelchair. When he saw who was helping him, a three-star general, he gulped, uh, sorry, sir, for not saying sir. I'm the one who should be calling you, sir, replied the general as he wheeled the young veteran to the assembly point for the other wounded. 
The soldiers were there for the first of many tours of the Pentagon organized for the wounded and their families. For many, this was their first time outside the rooms and hallways of Walter Reed Hospital since their injuries, so they had trouble handling what came next. As they came around a corner, the hallway erupted with thousands of cheering, flag-waving Department of Defense employees, many of those in the parade of crutches and wheelchairs, including family members, were overcome as they moved along. Later, one wife, sounding almost angry through her uncontrolled tears, told the Pentagon organizer, you should have warned us, you should have warned us. Sir, could I ask you a question? I knew what was coming. As the wounded toured the press briefing room, it was always the same question for the older guy in the suit whom they thought might have some authority. No matter how many limbs were missing or how serious the head wound, they asked me, Sir, is there any way you could help me get back to my unit? Guests of honor at a Washington think tank dinner, the two enlisted men in wheelchairs and the sergeant with a cane looked uneasy as they waited entirely unnoticed at the edge of the huge crowded ballroom. The event planners were with clipboards and bugs in their ear just rushed by. When I saw them from a distance, I maneuvered through the crowd and went up to them. They looked up at me as I summoned words that have inspired our fighting forces down the years. Gentlemen, would you like to follow me to the bar? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, was the enthusiastic response. The crowd parted magically on our way to two beers and a gin. Later, the same crowd oohed and odd when they heard of the soldiers' battlefield exploits. After the dinner, when the van arrived for the trip back to Walter Reed, I would see how good they were at helping fold up their wheelchairs, put them in the back, and then hop along towards their seats with a hand against the side of the van, all the while thanking me for the drinks. Hard to hear and hard to watch. The hero is grateful hopper, like the wife at the Pentagon parade. My reaction was emotional and I thought somebody should have warned me. Yes, as his name tag showed, the newly appointed aide to Joint Chiefs Chairman Peter Pace was the son of another well-known general. In answer to my questions, he added that it was also a West Point graduate, and he listed the several stateside locations where he had been stationed. With General Pace and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld just ahead of us as we headed towards the press briefing room, I thought that this young officer was going to have trouble gaining the respect of fellow officers who had seen combat. We turned the corner, though, and then he said, I was in Iraq too, sir, and as I saw his empty uniforms leave, he added, but I got hurt there. People fled the funeral service for Navy SEAL Jonas P. Kelsall as the building shook. Reassurance during an earthquake, though, is a church full of Navy SEALs. The squadron commander kept right on giving his eulogy, and Kelsall's comrades didn't budge. 
Victoria Jennings Kelso, herself a former Marine with a tour in Iraq, added to the intrepidity by speaking nearly unfalteringly of her hero husband and his belief in America's mission. Outside retired Colonel Oliver North, a Vietnam veteran, said to former Marine Commandant P.X. Kelly, a Vietnam veteran, both of them friends of Victoria's father, Jerry Jennings, an administration official and a Vietnam veteran. Aren't these kids amazing? General Kelly readily agreed. It's the reason why he explained when he was recovering from an operation at Bethesda Naval Hospital, he felt compelled to get himself moved off the deck with the admirals and onto the casualties floor. The casualties. I think of them sometimes, those I knew, the wounded, the ones who only wanted to get back to their unit or left limbs on foreign soil, the ones whom generals wanted to call sir or commandants wanted the honor of being on their hospital floor. I think too sometimes of the families of the fallen, the ones whose composure made words not inadequate but impossible. And so I sometimes wonder where they are and how life played out for them. If I were to see them again, I know that even if they asked, I would be reluctant to offer any thoughts on their sacrifice and its meaning, or that of those they loved. But if they asked again, if they pressed the question, I know I would answer and I know what I would tell them. That I have lived a while and seen the verdicts of history and know they are not always quickly rendered but that about them, the jury's finding is already in. That what they did was right and true, making others safe, protecting the weak, the innocent, giving others what they would never have had, the gift of the future, the gift of tomorrow. And I would say in doing all this, they had made themselves a part, in fact, the best part, of history's great story, the American story. So I would tell them they will be remembered. And again, that was Tony Dolan, who was Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter. And if you guys can put words together like Tony does, I've seen the verdicts of history, and they are not always quickly rendered, is so true. And Dolan talked about the gifts of the future and tomorrow. And he's so right. History's great story is the American story. And these men and women who sacrificed everything will be remembered. And here in our American stories, we don't talk about soldiers and the fallen soldiers of the past only on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. But we just do it regularly because it's the story of this country. And so many people have paid the ultimate price. And so many men and women are out there right now serving our country. And to all of you who served, who've lost loved ones, we thank you. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
89 cents in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots and a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy But that's alright People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up Till all the pains are cloud of dust Yes, sometimes I drive your truck This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another edition of our Story of a Song series. We've done another brick in the wall, Gimme Shelter, Billy Joel's Lullaby, The Doors Light My Fire, Jesus Take the Wheel, and There Goes My Life. This may be my favorite one. And you're listening to Lee Bryce singing I Drive Your Truck, a song that was number one on the Billboard country charts and won Song of the Year at the CMA in 2013 and one of the co-writers of this song is Connie Harrington and her inspiration for it came while driving her car in Nashville one Memorial Day a few years back and she was listening on the radio about this gold star father the distinction for families who lost a loved one in service he mentioned that he drove his son's truck and that and he went on to describe the truck and I'm in the car, and uh, I keep a little stack of post-it notes, and I begin to write the details of the truck um, while I'm driving. I know I'm crying and driving on trying not to run off the road. I scribbled down, you know, that he said it burns a lot of gas, but he didn't care. He drove it anyway. Uh, he said he, he hasn't cleaned the truck up, <laughs> and uh, people get on to him for that. But it's you'd kind of want to have their things the way they were. And this heart-wrenching and heartwarming account of this father led to I Drive Your Truck to the song. And you just heard it. You're going to hear it again at the end, and it'll all make a lot more sense. And here's that original interview Connie was listening to with Paul Monty, that father who lost his son, Jared, in Afghanistan in 2006. Boston radio station WBUR's Alex Ashlack is interviewing Paul in the Massachusetts National Cemetery on Cape Cod, where Jared is buried. It is Memorial Day 2011, and Paul has started a foundation to make sure all the grave sites have an American flag. I think I have this right. Do you still drive Jared's truck? Yes, I do. There it is. Yep. Tell me about that truck. Ah, uh, what can I tell you? It's just, it's him. It's got his DNA all over it. Um, I just, I love driving it because it reminds me of him, though I don't need the truck to remind me of him. I think about him every hour of every day. It's a Dodge 4x4 Ram 1500. It's got the uh, decals, the 10th Mountain Division, 82nd Airborne Division, American flags, uh, uh, 
bumper sticker for the Jared Monte Scholarship Fund. Uh, My gold star plate <laughs> on there. Go Army, support the troops. And uh, though it only gets uh, pretty bad mileage, <laughs> it's uh, I'm happy driving it. He's with me, but he's with me all the time anyway. And let's rejoin Paul Monty as he describes the difference between losing a parent and losing a child. People tell you time heals all. Well, in this case, it doesn't. Losing a parent is one thing. That's your past. But losing a child, you've lost your future. You don't have those grandkids to look forward to and those those special days of going to the ballpark together or going fishing. All of that that you envisioned is gone. Losing your child is like losing your future. And it's so true. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the young man, Paul's son, Jared, who has posthumously received the Congressional Medal of Honor, our nation's highest medal for valor on the battlefield. Jared was trying to rescue a fellow soldier in the midst of an intense firefight with over 50 enemy combatants. He didn't try once, not twice, but three times to rescue fellow soldier Brian Bradbury. It was on his third and last attempt that Jared gave the ultimate sacrifice for his fellow soldier and his country. Let's listen to Paul describe who his son was. Jared never liked any kind of notoriety at all. Um, all his medals went in a sock drawer. No one ever saw them. Um, he never wanted to stand out. So he wouldn't have done this in a big venue. He would have found a warehouse somewhere with an unlocked door and uh, appropriated or borrowed some flags, come down here in the middle of the night, put them all in, and someone would have come the next day and say, wow, someone decorated the cemetery. That, that was the way he was. Um, he never would have admitted that it was him that did it because he did that his whole life. He just, we had a, we had a family in, uh, in Rainham, a single mom with three kids, and uh, he got to know her, and she wasn't going to have a Christmas. So he came home. He was 17 years old. He came home, and I had a bunch of spruce trees in the front yard. They were, you know, six feet tall. And uh, he asked me if he could cut one down. And uh, I says, you know, what for? He says, well, uh, just, just, you know, the guys, we want to we wanna have our own little Christmas. I said, okay, go ahead. Well, it wasn't until after he died that I found out what he did. He cut the tree down. They bought a stand. They bought all the decorations for the tree. They bought presents for the kids and the mom. They uh, brought it over her house, set the tree up, put the lights on it, decorated it, bought them Christmas dinner, and left presents. Never told a soul. It was his friends that told me after he had passed that he had done this. And he was 17. He was 17. Yeah. Yep. That's the way he lived his life. Always. It was always the underdog that he stood up for. And uh, just everything was done quietly, though. It was, uh, you know, another is he was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, he and two other buddies got a place together. And they went out and they furnished it. And one day the two guys came home and the kitchen set was missing. And Jared went home and they started, Jared, look kitchen set's gone. Where is it? Jared said, well, I was over at one of my soldiers' houses today, and his kids were eating on the floor. So I figured they needed the kitchen set more than we did. 
So, so the seven hundred dollar kitchen set disappeared. <laughs> That's what he did. He was he was like Robin Hood. One day down there, also the sofa and uh, love seat disappeared from the enlisted officers' uh, place. <laughs> they didn't know where it went. That was him again. <laughs> it disappeared and went to someone that needed it. So, and and again, you know. He did this wherever he went. When, when he was in Korea or in Kosovo and Afghanistan, it was whatever someone needed, they got it one way or another. And, and if it meant, you know, doing something on the sly, what the heck? It, it's a matter of doing the right thing and who needs what. And again, that's Paul Monty, the Gold Star Dad, talking about his son, a songwriter, hearing this interview and being so moved that she had no choice, was compelled to pull over to the side of the road, take down these notes, and write a song about this beautiful, beautiful father and son. What a father-son story. More story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. This is Our American Stories. It's the story of a song. Paul Monty, the father, inspired these lyrics. But it was the son's life that inspired Paul. And hopefully, listening to this story, inspiring all of us. And when we left off, we were talking about Connie Harrington, the songwriter who had heard this story, had heard this interview from the Gold Star father talking about his son and driving his son's truck. And my goodness, there had to be a song in it, she thought. She wrote a lot of notes. She came back, talked to her friend, Jesse Alexander, with whom she writes and co-writes a lot of songs in and around Nashville. And Jesse Alexander, the co-writer of this great song, explained the songwriting process. I just remember being pregnant with the twins and 
not even really wanting to go to work, but I saw Connie on my book and would never miss a day with her. And uh, just, I remember, you know, she always has great titles. Connie's just known for having so, so many great ideas. And she started to kind of go through different ones. They just weren't really striking my fancy, you know, it was a little blurry, foggy from the pregnancy. And uh, then she said, well, I do have this one. And she immediately started to cry. She couldn't, I mean, she said, I have this one. And, you know, that's, that's as far as she got. And I said, well, let me hear that. And she's like, <laughs> she, she's like, well, it's about this. And then that was over. And she couldn't, she literally couldn't, she said, well, later. She said later, but Jesse, well, she kept pressing. And it turns out Connie did discover a title of that song. Let's continue to listen to Jesse. When she said, finally came around to saying the title, there were a lot of, immediately I knew I had a big responsibility. Like this this was a really like, you know, kid gloves, the number one thing. Didn't want to mess it up. I didn't want to mess it up. (laughs) Second thing, I didn't, I knew for a fact with everything in me that, I was not solely meant to write this melody, and you weren't solely meant to write that there was a missing piece for us in the room, and for me, that was a male voice, because, you know, being female songwriters, we really struggle writing songs for men. And it's hard. It's hard for men to write stories about women, and we can try. We can try and empathize, but in the end, these writers know the truth of the matter, and so they reached out to Jimmy Yeary, and he helped complete this song. We had a title, we had an idea, we had the storylines, we had notes. It was all shared with Jimmy Yeary, a co-writer. There were three co-writers on I Drive Your Truck. And here's Jesse continuing about the creation of this great song in our story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. He just nailed it. And I'll, I just never forget the feeling of when it was done and just the prayer that came over all of us, like, please let this song just be heard. You know, we have so many songs vaulted, and every day we, you know, we write a song that just gets put in some, like, I've got hundreds and hundreds of songs put away, but God, let this one just get heard. Like, so one day that guy could hear that song. And- yep, and that's the fear of every songwriter, that the song just never gets heard. And now let's take a listen to Jesse Alexander, one of the three co-writers of I Drive Your Truck, singing live an acoustic version of this beautiful song. 89 cents in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade Rolling on the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the radio Old school can of cowboy boots and a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy Oh, but that's alright People got their ways of coping Yeah, I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down I find a field, I tear it up Till all the pains cloud of dust Just sometimes I drive you true And now let's listen to the father react to the song itself, of course, Lee Bryce's version and what that song means to him. 
It was very uplifting. It was a song that's touched the hearts of Gold Star families throughout the country, as well as, well as other families that have lost their, their child. And, um, you know, it, it's fitting that we have something out there that honors them that they can hold on to. And again, that was Paul Monty, the grief of a father, and it will never go away. There'll be no closure. One more quote from Paul Monty, and then we're going to play the entire song. You know, I think it's important for people to understand, or at least try to understand, what gold star parents go through. Your child is your future. When you lose your child, you've lost your future. And I think one of the reasons so many gold star parents drive their children's trucks is because they have to hold on. They just have to hold on. We covered some of that earlier, but it was worth just reading again. The grief Jared's father feels will never go away. He'll probably drive that truck of his son's for as long as it will run, and then longer. By the way, the last verse of this song, again, we're about to play it in its entirety, Well, it says it all. I've cussed, I've prayed, I've said goodbye. I've shook my fist and asked God why. These days, when I'm missing you this much, I drive your truck. It's perfect writing. And again, a beautiful, beautiful piece of work by these three co-writers, all of whom shared so graciously this song to all of these Gold Star families. Let's take a listen. Eighty-nine cents in the ashtray, half-empty bottle of Gatorade rolling in the floorboard. That dirty Braves cap on the dash, dog tags hanging from the rear view. Old skull can and cowboy boots and a gold army shirt folded in the back. This thing burns gas like crazy, but that's alright. People got their ways of coping, oh, and I got mine. I drive your truck, I roll it.
This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, the story of Paul Monty, his grief for a fallen soldier who happened to be his son and the love of his life, or one of them. This is, again, Our American Stories. Drive your truck. Mm-hmm. I drive your truck. 